Section 3 of The Life of a Fossil Hunter This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kualada The Life of a Fossil Hunter by Charles Sternberg Chapter 3 Expedition with Professor Cope to the badlands of the upper cretaceous eighteen seventy six about the first of august eighteen seventy six mr isaac and i were in omaha awaiting the arrival of professor cope from philadelphia we met him at the depot and i remember his watching me with astonishment as i limped along the street on my crippled leg at last turning to isaac whom he knew to be a horseman he asked can mr sternberg ride a horse isaac answered i've seen him mount a pony bareback and cut out one of his mares from a herd of wild horses that satisfied the professor and when we got to montana he gave me the worst-tempered pony in the bunch we were soon hurrying along over the treeless plains of nebraska gaining in altitude every hour until we reached the highlands of the great divide and plunged down into weber and echo canyons whose forests are dwarfed into miniatures by the majesty of the mountains about them it was the first time that i had ever been among these stupendous cliffs and ranges and i held my breath for every wonder as they unfolded before my astonished vision they soon became familiar sights enough but never even when i gazed every day upon the three tetons with the snow glistening in their gorges in midsummer or upon the mighty ranges of the rockies did i lose my feeling of awe at the power here displayed by the almighty architect who carved these beautiful canyons and set these towering peaks as solemn sentinels over the works of his hands we had the pleasure of mrs cope's company as far as ogden then we three men taking the narrow gauge railway went to the franklin idaho here the most uncomfortable journey i had ever experienced awaited us six hundred miles in a concord coach through the dry barren plains of idaho our six horses raised clouds of fine dust which penetrated our clothing and filled our eyes and ears and sticking to the perspiration that oozed from every pore soon gave us the appearance of having the jaundice i cannot begin to describe the discomforts of that terrible ride we travelled ten miles an hour day and night stopping only for meals which cost us a dollar each and consisted of hot soda biscuit black coffee bacon and mustard without butter milk or eggs if one hour from continued loss of sleep we dozed off for a moment a sudden lurch of the coach into a chuck hole would break our heads against a post or a neighbor's head and remember that 
Once, when the professor was almost exhausted from lack of sleep, I took his head in my arms and held it there so that he might get a few hours' rest. I should like here to express my gratitude to the fellow passengers who so often gave me a seat by the driver, where, buttoned in by the leathern apron, I got more than my share of sleep. When we reached the mountains, the beauty of the scenery and the absence of dust made the journey more endurable but we had to walk up all the steep ascents at helena we laid off for a few days there the news was fresh from the battlefield of custer and the brave men who had followed him to death a letter of his written just before he entered the valley of death was read to us by the proprietor of the hotel i remember one sentence of it we have found the indians and are going in after them we may not come out alive all was excitement and the professor was strongly advised against the folly of going to the neutral ground between the sioux and their hereditary enemies the crows a member of either tribe might kill us and lay our death to the other tribe cope however reasoned that now was our time to go into this region since every able-bodied sioux would be with the braves under the setting bull while the skulls and the children would be hidden away in some fastness of the mountains there would be no danger for us he argued until the sioux were driven north by the soldiers who were gathering under terry and crook for the final struggle judging from past experience he concluded that we should have nearly three months in which to make our collections in peace we would leave the field he said when we learned that the great chief was being so closely pressed as to be forced to seek safety in flight to the soil of great Britain, across the sweet grass mountains into assiniboia his judgment proved good it was not until november when a heavy snowstorm has covered both the fossil fields and grass for the ponies that sitting bull gave up the unequal struggle against cold and the boys in blue and retreated to a more friendly soil at fort benton we found a typical frontier town of that day streets paved with playing cards and whiskey for sale in open saloons and groceries our presence has been heralded abroad during our stay in helena and the professor had difficulty in securing an outfit without paying an exorbitant price for it they knew him to be a stranger and they took him in finally however he secured four horses for the wagon the wheelers were worn-out mustangs which we were obliged to punish constantly to keep at work while one of the leaders a fine four-year-old colt had to be knocked down half a dozen times before he could be taught not to balk and strike out with his four feet at any one who came within reach the otter leader old major was as true as steel and often saved the day doing his duty nobly in spite of the miserable company in which he was forced to work the first night mr isaac and i slept outside the town 
with the four wagon horses and the three saddle ponies which were all picketed with new rope in the middle of the night we heard an animal groaning and rushed out to find our four-year-old cut fearfully beneath the fetlocks by the ropes we had to cut him loose help him up and bind his wounds he was able to travel the next day however and his accident was not altogether a misfortune as he was too sore for some time afterwards to show his natural disposition we drove down to the mouth of the judith river opposite claggett where an indian trader had a store enclosed in a stockade here we went into camp across the river were the lodges of two thousand crows indians who were preparing for their annual buffalo hunt in this neutral ground where sioux and crow alike buried the hatchet while they hunted the game that was their principal sustenance mr isaac with the dread of the red man still in his heart insisted that we must protect the camp by standing guard over it turn and turn about and to pacify him the guard was mounted i took the first turn and mr isaac the second the professor did me the honor of sharing his tent with me and we were just dozing off when we heard mr isaac shout halt looking out we saw an indian approaching with his squaw behind him the moonlight bringing out their forms in bold relief halt halt called isaac leveling his winchester but indian followed by his faithful squall continued to advance up to the very muzzle of the gun repeating me good indian me good indian cope dressed and went out and found that the indian has mistaken us for illicit whisky dealers and come over to get a supply the professor told the man to go to sleep under the wagon and at daylight to recross and invite half a dozen of the principal chiefs to breakfast with us the two indians lay down and went to sleep as directed but they had just begun to snore peacefully when isaac's turn at guard duty was over and he came to the wagon to wake the cook a slow heavy man whose fat cheeks had induced the professor to believe that he could cook digestible food the scout cope had hired was not on hand although he as well as the cook had demanded his pay in advance before he could accompany us after much growling the cook got up and remembering that he had left his shoes under the wagon went to get them and came upon the sleeping beauties without more ado he seized their dirty banquet in both hands and coolly hauled them out to the open prairie after which he proceeded to get his shoes at four o'clock in the morning it was cope's turn to go on guard he was awakened but as his spencer carbine was at the bottom of his trunk and perhaps too because he was a friend and did not believe in war he refused to get up and we slept in safety the rest of the night without a guard just before breakfast the professor as was his custom was washing his set of false teeth in a basin of water when a party of six stalwart chieftains strode up in single file 
in answer to his invitation through the brave we had entertained. Quickly slipping the teeth into his mouth, Cope advanced with a smiling face to greet his guests, who shouted as one man, Do it again, do it again. He repeated the performance for them again and again, much to their mystification. After they had tried to pull out their own and each other's teeth and had failed, they settled down to breakfast. The cook poured out their coffee for them, and when they had had enough, they shouted, When? We never knew whether this hospitality was of any benefit to us, as the whole tribe went on their buffalo hunt, and we saw no more of them. But very likely their chiefs forbade petty stealing from our camp, for we lost nothing. We crossed the Missouri, here a clear, sparkling stream, and the Judith River, and went into camp in the narrow valley of Dark Creek, in the midst of the fossil fields which we had come so far and at such risks to explore. All about us stretched the interminable reverence of the badlands. Above us lay twelve hundred feet of denuded rock, which Cope at that time believed to belong to several formations. The rock consists of great beds of black shale, which disintegrates on the surface into a fine black dust. The lower levels contain many baits of lignite, which makes a good soft coal and burns readily. We found beds four feet thick along the canyons. All one had to do was to drive up to the face of the cliff and load a wagon in a few minutes. As soon as the first streak of daylight appeared, we breakfasted and were off, our picks tied to our saddles, our collecting bags dangling from the pommels, and a lunch of cold bacon and hot track in our saddle bags. I usually rode beside the professor, my mount a treacherous black mustang, who was ever on the watch to regain his liberty. A curb bit that almost tore his mouth to pieces was my only means of restraining him. My right ear being totally deaf, I usually rode at the professor's right when the trail would admit of our traveling abreast. He was not always in the talkative mood, but when he began to speak of the wonderful animals of this earth, those of long ago and those of today, so absorbed did he become in his subject that he talked on as if to himself, looking straight ahead and rarely turning toward me, while I listened entranced. Not so that rich black mustang of mine. Suddenly his front feet would leave the ground, and he would stand up at full length on his hind legs. Then, feeling the gouging of the Spanish bit, he would drop and run ahead to the professor's left side, when the professor, happening to look up, found a place where I had been vacant, he would exclaim in surprise, Why, I thought you were on my right, and here you are on my left. The pony repeated this trick whenever I became so deeply interested in the professor's talk as to loosen my hold on the reins. On the very top of the badlands were the Judith River beds, now known through the researches of the lay professor J.B. Hatcher, to belong to the Fort Pierre group of the Upper Cretaceous. Here, tablelands and level prairies 
offered plenty of grass for our ponies. So we climbed to these heights, picketed our horses, and went into the gorges in search of fossils. It was necessary to give the loose tail the most careful examination, as only a streak of dust a little different in color from the uniform black around it indicated where the bones were buried. As a result of the loose composition of this friable black shale and the overlying rocks of sandstone, the Missouri has lowered its bed 1,200 feet below the level of the prairies, and the whole country is cut up by a perfect labyrinth of canyons and lateral ravines into a dreary landscape of utter barrenness. At night, the view from above these intricate passages was appalling. The black material of which the rocks are composed did not permit a single ray of light to penetrate the depths below, and the ebony-like darkness seemed dense enough to cut. Long ridges terminating in perpendicular cliffs, whose bases impinge upon the river a thousand feet below, extend back into the country for miles. Often, they are cut by lateral ravines into peaks and pinnacles, obelisks and towers, and other fantastic forms. These ridges are so narrow that we could hardly walk along them, and their sides drop at an angle of 45 degrees. It was only the disintegrated shale on the surface, into which our feet sank at every step, that gave us the foothold and kept us from shooting with a frightful velocity into the gorges below. One day, the professor asked me to climb to a point near the summit of a lofty ridge, crowned by two massive ledges of sandstone, four feet thick, which projected over the steep slope like the window sill of some titanic building. These ledges, one above the other and separated by sixty feet of shale, had been swept clean for about three feet, so that I found an easy pathway from my feet, when after laborious climbing I reached the lower ledge. From my lofty perch I had a bird's-eye view of mile upon mile of the wonderful badlands, a scene of desolation such as no pen can picture. It was my duty to search every square inch of the dust-covered slope between the ledges for fossil bones. After much unsuccessful effort, I came to a place at the head of a gorge where a perpendicular escarpment dropped downward for a thousand feet. The upper ledge of sandstone had broken loose for a space of thirty feet, and this huge mass of rock, four feet thick, carrying with it the loose dirt and polishing the underlying surface as it thundered down the slope, has struck the lower ledge with such force that it too had broken loose and plunged downward into the abyss. A grove of pine trees at the base of the cliff had been crushed to the earth by this avalanche. To my view, the remaining trees, which I knew to be about fifty feet high, appeared like seedlings, and a vast mass of rock like a cobblestone. I concluded that I should have no difficulty in crawling across the smooth space, 
for I reasoned that if I began to slip, I could drive the sharp end of my pick into the soft rock and thus stop myself. So, climbing up the slope through the loose earth to the base of the upper ledge, I started cross. When I was halfway over, I began to slip and confidently raising my pick, struck the rock with all my might. God grant that I may never again feel such horror as I felt then, when the pick upon which I had depended for safety rebounded as if it had been polished steel, as useless in my hands as a bit of straw. I struck frantically again and yet again, but all the time I was sliding down with ever-increasing rapidity toward the edge of the abyss, safety on either side and certain an awful death below. I remember that I gave up all hope of escape, and that after the first shock I felt no fear of death, but a few moments of my slight seemed hours, measured by the rapidity with which my mind worked. Everything, it seemed to me, that I had ever done or thought spread itself out before my mind's eye, as vividly as the wonderful panorama of the cliffs and the canyons upon which I had been gazing a few moments before. All the scenes of my life, from childhood up, were re-enacted here with the same emotions of pleasure or pain. I saw distinctly the people I had known, many of them long forgotten. My mother seemed to stand out more prominently than anyone else, and I wondered what she would think when she heard that I had been dashed to pieces. I even planned how, when I did not return to camp, Cope would set out to find me, following my footsteps into the loose dirt until he reached the slide, and I wondered how he would ever get down into the canyon and how much of my body would be left for burial. To this day, I do not know how I escaped. I suddenly found myself lying on the ledge, on the side I had left a moment before. Probably some part of my clothing, covered with dust as it was, had acted as a break upon the polished surface. I lay for an hour with trembling knees, too weak to make my way back to camp. This experience of mine is another instance of the fact that the human brain forgets nothing and will yield up everything when the right kind of stimulus is applied. The excitement of our work and the danger with it seemed to make us reckless of life, Professor Cope even more so than the rest of us. Although he was at the time United States paleontologist and worth a million dollars, I remember one night he was following a buffalo trail to the river, when suddenly his horse stopped and refused to go further. Without dismounting to find out the cause, he plunged his spurs into the animal and it sprang into the air. Mr. Isaac, who was behind, followed. The next day they were surprised to find that they had crossed a gorge ten feet wide, and that but for the keen sight and the strength of their horses, they would have been dashed to pieces a hundred feet below. Cove's indefatigability, too, was a constant source of wonder to us. We were in excellent training after our strenuous outdoor life in the Kansas chalk beds. 
while he had just been working fourteen hours a day in his study and lithographer's shop completing a large government monograph writing his own manuscript and reading his own proof when we first met him in omaha he was so weak he reeled from side to side as he walked yet here he climbed the highest cliffs and walked along the most dangerous ledges working without intermission from daylight until dark every night when we returned to camp we found that the cook had spent the whole day in cooking exhausted and thirsty we had no water to drink during the day all the water in the badlands being like a dense solution of epsom salts we sat down to a supper of cakes and pies and utter palatable but indigestible food then when we went to bed the professor would soon have a severe attack of nightmare every animal of which we had found traces during the day played with him at night tossing him into the air kicking him trampling upon him when i waked him he would thank me cordially and lie down to another attack sometimes he would lose half the night in this exhausting slumber but the next morning he would lead the party and be the last to keep up at night i have never known a more wonderful example of the wheel's power over the body his memory and his imagination too were extraordinary he used to talk to me by the hour arranging the living and dead animals of the earth in systematic order giving countless scientific names and their definitions i forgot the names as soon as i heard them but the loving tribute which he paid to the wonders of creation has had a lasting and helpful effect upon me if i ever had any feelings of disgust or fear toward any of god's creatures i lost them upon a knowledge of the animals as revealed to me by this master naturalist who saw beauty even in lizards and snakes he believed and taught me to believe that it is a crime to destroy life wantonly any life of course the first law of nature is self-preservation we must in order to live kill our enemies and protect our friends but this superstitious fear which men and even more women have of snakes lizards and bugs how cruel it is why should they rejoice when some poor little garter snake which has gone as a friend into the cellar walk to destroy rats and mice is dragged out and cut to pieces my heart bleeds when i think of the brutal way in which people take life something they can never give back and with the great cope i cry out against this crime which is exterminating some of our most beautiful and useful friends no man can say he loves us when he wantonly destroys our work no man loves god who wantonly destroys his creatures we found no complete specimens of any fossil animals during our stay on dock creek but near the summit of the badlands under beds of yellowish sandstone we came upon localities literally filled with the scattered bones and teeth of dinosaurs those terrible lizards whose thread once shook the earth they are represented now by the little horned toad of central kansas 
among the fragments were pieces of the finely sculptured shells of the sea turtles trionics and aducus and remains of that strange dinosaur trachodon whose teeth were arranged as in a magazine one below another so that when the old teeth wore out otters were ready to take their place the specimen in the illustration is from dr osborne and lamb's contribution to canadian paleontology on the vertebrata of the mid cretaceous of the northwest territory nineteen o two the splendid cretaceous dinosaur here illustrated is from wyoming figure fourteen this last form was restored by the late professor march and is now mounted in the museum of yale university what a strange picture it presents this great plant eater as standing on its hind limbs its powerful tail acting as the third leg of a tripod it grabs the branches of a tree with its weak hands and arms while its teeth scrape off the tender leaves in one of these localities we found teeth belonging to some extinct ray-like fish that were arranged in the roof and floor of the mouth like bricks in a pavement forming a sort of meal which ground up the shells upon which the creature subsisted a strange thing about these teeth was that one side of the enamel was white and the other black cope called the species miletophus bipartitus the diamond-shaped enamel scales of the lepidotus an ancient relative of the garpike were very common as were also the teeth of several species of dinosaurs besides those already mentioned today the great museums of the country have complete or nearly complete skeletons of these creatures the largest land animals that ever inhabited the earth the splendid specimen of brontosaurus in the american museum at new york is over sixty feet long nothing so fires the imagination as a visit to the halls where these ancient lizards now stand i am delighted that recent authorities dr osborne and lamb have given professor cope credit for these discoveries of his in eighteen seventy six discoveries which are made the more memorable by the fact that he was the first scientist who had the foresight and the courage to explore these fossil beds after dr hayden their original discoverer was driven out of the region by blackfeet indians indeed the chief purpose of this chapter is to put forward the claim that professor cope mr isaac and myself made the first real collection of these wonderful saurians after satisfying himself that there were no skeleton more or less complete on dock creek cope took the guide and went off down the river to cow island forty miles below this point was the head of navigation on the missouri in october the water then being so low that the steamboat could not get up to fort benton the last boat came up on the fifteenth of october to carry a load of ore and passengers down to the railroad at omaha and as the professor had decided to take this boat it was necessary for him to be on hand when it arrived end of section three
Recorded by Pallada.